You're listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. As a teacher in the schools, you tend to learn a lot about human nature. And one thing I've observed time and time again, people tend to not finish very well. For example, Fridays at school are not the most productive. Everyone has their mindset on the weekend and one foot out the door. It gets even worse if a holiday is coming up, like Christmas break or spring break. By the middle of the week prior to the holidays, students are checked out already, and honestly, the teachers are on the same page. You're not going to get much focused instructional time straight up until the end, and it's usually a good week to come up with an excuse to show a movie. And at the end of the school year, with summer break on the horizon, you're talking about a lack of productivity and focus weeks ahead of time. And with high school seniors, it's even worse. The fame senioritis is a real thing. Most have checked out shortly after Christmas break. It can be hard to finish strong, can't it? We're ready for a break sooner rather than later. In the last podcast, we saw that Paul was pointing out the promise of Christ's return and that the church should watch and be ready for it, since it will come like a thief in the night, so we should always be ready, and that we won't know exactly when it will come, but we should be attentive to the signs of the times, and we may be able to recognize the season. For the believers, we have not been appointed to wrath. Many believing this means the Christians will be taken out prior to God's wrath being poured out ultimately on a Christ-rejecting world in something called the Tribulation. Paul finished the section by telling them emphatically, comfort and edify each other just as you also are doing, encouraging them to live today for the reality that their future rests in Jesus, with him in his kingdom, whenever or however that will come, their place is secured. But that doesn't mean they can check out now, like seniors heading to graduation or the whole junior high in attendance in body but on break in their minds. And that's what Paul turns to now as he approaches the end of his letter to the Thessalonians, reminding them that they can't be so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good, and they can't check out too soon with their eyes on the prize of being with the Lord. While they could be confident in the future and hope, they reminded they were needed to remain sober and focused, serving Jesus in the here and now as a church of believers and as individual followers of Jesus. And though they might be inclined or tempted to pack their bags and sit and wait for the bell, there were things to be done and needs to attend to. And Paul calls upon them to sit tight and work up until the final bell. So we pick up in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 12. As we have seen in Paul's letters, things for the Thessalonians had not been easy. Though they had found hope and joy in the gospel of Jesus when it was presented to them by Paul and his team, they got hit real hard and real fast with opposition and persecution. Since Paul had only been able to stick around for three weeks or so, this meant that the leaders in the new church took on a lot of responsibility right away, thrust into the front lines of defending the faith, standing up against opposition, and encouraging the other new believers while they too were only new believers themselves. That's a lot of pressure. Sort of like when the oldest sibling needs to grow up real fast and take charge and help raise the younger ones because the parents are working their tails off to make ends meet. And Paul, I imagine, knew this and understood this. So he writes now that the believers in the church should give them a break. We read in 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 12 through 13. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake be at peace among yourselves. Paul urges the church there. The word urge is erotao. It means to request, to ask, to beseech. It can often suggest that the petitioner is on a footing of equality or familiarity with the person whom he requests, like of a king of one place making a request of a king of another place. 
So Paul is asking this in some humility, not lording over these believers in Thessalonica, but almost asking them for a favor. Leadership and authority look different in Christ's kingdom and in the world. When there were some squabbles among Jesus' own disciples and about greatness, and two of the twelve were jockeying for some positions in the anticipated kingdom, Jesus smashed the power play going on between them when he said in Mark 10, But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus challenged them to see greatness in the kingdom in service. Those leaders sent by him coming through the servant's entrance, sacrificing personally in order to lead effectively. An attitude of humility and heart of service that is the pathway to the throne. So when Paul had some, some important thing to say to the Thessalonian church, he urges them, he requests this of them. He doesn't pull out this apostle card and command them to do what he sees as right. And I think one reason for that is that Paul wants them to be under Jesus's authority. And as they submit to that, the Holy Spirit will work in their hearts to do these things of wisdom that he is about to encourage them to do. Paul, apparently patient, wanted to see Jesus lord over their hearts more than him as an apostle to lord over their actions. Paul recognizes that Jesus is the head of the church, and that though Jesus bestowed different giftings and callings in the body of Christ, that they were a royal priesthood, each believer on equal footing before the cross of Christ. Although in his humble appeal we can see that Paul believed that, he also acknowledges that God places each member of the body into it as he, the Lord, sees fit. And there are roles in the body, and some are delegated leadership and authority. And there were some who were, quote, over them. Read that again. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. He is urging, recommending to them there, that though they were excited and waiting for Jesus to come back to establish his kingdom in which they would all serve, for the time being, there were some who labored among them and were over them in the Lord. And Paul wants to recommend how they should view and treat those. First of all, they labored among them. The word in the Greek for labor is to grow tired or weary or exhausted, to work so hard that you are pooped out. That's who Jesus had placed in leadership in Thessalonica and does in the body of Christ, those who have hearts to serve and will work hard in doing so. Ministry is not for the lazy or those who can't, who want a cake job. It's not a nine to five job or a 40 hour and then you clock out sort of thing. The needs keep coming. The clock doesn't shut off. You have to be willing to step in and be the hands and feet of Jesus. The Lord will often test those he is calling into ministry to see what they will do with the opportunities he gives them, saying, Well done, good and faithful servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And when we work hard in serving in small things, then he gives more. And that is how we should serve with whatever the Lord has entrusted to us, knowing it is a stewardship from God. He is asking us to be responsible to things that matter to him, and that often means working hard. Jesus said in Luke 17, And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. 
So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you were commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Serving the Lord can be exhausting as we balance the other responsibilities of life and the abundance of needs that just keep coming and the attacks that we face for being on the front lines of what the Lord is doing. But there is a motivation and urgency and need to press on because it is benefiting the Lord's kingdom, even though it may not always benefit us. A pastor I know posted recently a a shot of the room where the church meets, looking out from the pulpit, all the chairs lined up, the room ready for the congregation. And in his post, he wrote about how he was being honest in his discouragement, serving on the mission field, giving up a lot to be far from family and friends, and all the challenges that come with cross-cultural missions. He had studied all week, prepared for the meeting, gotten things ready at the church, cleared his schedule to be there, and one person showed up. He didn't write it to complain or, or to quit or to shame his congregation in this post, but he wrote this. To be honest, I was a little discouraged that only one person came to Bible study. I understand, though. The church heater is broken. Life is busy. Families need family time. Work is hectic. And we need to stop at the supermarket to have milk for tomorrow morning. I try really hard to make an environment of peace, prepare a Bible study that will edify and love every one that shows up. And God help me love that one. For even Jesus leaves the 99 to spend quality time with that one. Sometimes this is it, folks. Just do what we're called to do. Show up faithfully and love with the strength and the fruit of God's Spirit, whoever the Lord brings. This is church planting. Love the one, show up, and be faithful. Then as a postscript, he said, By the way, not a sympathy post. I'm very encouraged and happy. Just sometimes we only want to post pictures of a full church or pictures at an angle that makes the church look full. And in doing so, we are dishonest about the reality of church life. I love this guy's heart. And I too have been there, done that, as has anyone called to serve God's people, shown up and poured out, even though they did not feel motivated to, or pressing on in discouragement, laboring to the point of exhaustion, taking up the call and fulfilling the duty that Jesus had placed upon them. And anyone who has served the Lord has probably experienced a similar discouragement, feeling like you are giving but not seeing the impact, wondering if your labor is in vain, tempted to give up and get out, but we continue because Jesus has asked us to. Paul shared this sentiment when he wrote to the church in Corinth, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul was committed to work harder, more abundantly, even than the others, but not because he had it in him to do so, or out of a workspace attitude that Jesus would somehow like him more if he did it a bit more, but because he knew the grace of Jesus would fill him to do whatever the Lord was calling him to do. And Paul never got enough of experiencing that grace. So these leaders in Thessalonica labored, but Paul also wrote there, They are over you in the Lord and admonish you. There were some in Thessalonica that were called to be over them. The word is proestemi, to set over, to be over, to care for, to give attention to, to provide aid for. These servant leaders were not bosses called to be in charge, calling the shots. They were set by God over them to care for the sheep, as shepherds watching, tending, and caring for the flock. Peter wrote to such leaders in his epistle, saying, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. 
caring for the flock of God with hearts of a shepherd. So just what does Paul urge the people in Thessalonica to do in regard to these caring servant leaders who labored in exhaustion and tending to their spiritual and probably oftentimes practical needs? We read again, and notice the three things Paul tells them to consider. We urge you, brethren, to first, recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to second, esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and third, be at peace among yourselves. Paul urges them, asks a favor of them. These servant leaders were doing a lot. The leadership and the care of the church having been thrust on them quickly. Not a lot of training or mentoring or nurturing themselves prior to taking this on. And remember, this is the early church and a new church. These leaders were probably still working jobs as this was no mega church. Maybe it couldn't support pastors and executive pastors and youth leaders. Probably no full-time pastors on staff. And the climate in Thessalonica was hateful toward these Christians. So these leaders had a target on their backs, more than likely. So Paul urges them to first, recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Recognize them. It means to see them, to notice them, to cherish them, to pay attention to them. Pay attention to them, Paul says. Pay attention to their example and do what they do. Sing the way they serve and are devoted to Jesus. Pay attention to them and notice all the work that they do and the heart with which they do it. Pay attention to them and don't let their hard work go unnoticed. Of course, true servants will do it when no one notices or says anything. But when it feels like no one knows or appreciates, that can be hard to keep going. So a little encouragement, well, it can go a long way. Sometimes just a simple thank you can encourage someone to go on in what God has called them to do. Not sure how legit this is, but I saw a post on social media recently and it said, the average person loses seven key relationships in a lifetime. The average pastor lost seven key relationships last year. Pray for your pastors. Give them some grace. Christian, Christian leadership is hard. Lots of eyes on you and everyone with expectations of how it should be done. Meanwhile, you are trying to hear from Jesus and obey him. While I miss serving the Lord full-time all the time, I was actually really thankful to not have that weight of pastoring full-time during COVID with all the decisions local Christian leaders are facing. Stay open, close down, mandate masks, have the potluck, cancel the conference. The enemy definitely strained the pot in some circles to bring divisions in the body with bullseyes on the backs of Christian leaders. Paul says to recognize those leaders. Notice them, cherish them. They aren't doing it for glory. They're humble shepherds but they will be encouraged if you show your appreciation. Second, Paul says, esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Count them very highly in love for the work that they do. There are a lot of leaders that we might respect, certain civic leaders or your kid's teacher or principal or your boss or CEO. Good leadership is esteemed and respected, even appreciated. But Paul throws in the word love there, agape, that unconditional love of action. In the church, we should love our leaders. We should respect them, but we should also love them. Pray for them, care for them, provide for them because of the work that they do. You know, there are different types of leaders. Some are positional leaders. We obey because, well, we have to. Some are leaders that we benefit from, so we stick around because we'll get something from them, some motive or goal we want to fulfill. Some are relational leaders. We'll follow them because we like them, their friends or family, and we show respect to their leadership. Others are transforming leaders. We follow their lead because our lives are transformed and we change in good and needed ways because of their influence. That's one reason we are to love leaders in the church, because God works through them and their leading 
to bring us closer to God, to build us up in our faith, and to make us more like Him. Well, I didn't grow up in a Calvary Chapel church. My life and ministry on the mission field were impacted when I grafted into the Calvary Chapel movement, and I had always heard of Pastor Chuck, as Pastor Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa was affectionately known as. People talked about him because he had impacted them greatly, having started the first Calvary Chapel, which became a movement, simply teaching the Word of God and sharing the grace and love of God and a dependence on the Spirit. And a movement of God started around this man. Many young Christians stepping out in faith in what became the Calvary Chapel movement in the late 60s and 70s and beyond. So I wasn't from this background, and I didn't know a Pastor Chuck. But everyone seemed to talk about him like he was their best friend or like he had personally discipled them. He was known for his expository teaching, and I listened to tapes of his Old Testament and New Testament survey, good, deep, clear, simple, but nothing super showy or exciting. He even sped them up to get through them faster because some of them were pretty in-depth and quite long. But people loved Pastor Chuck, and it was mutual. He just loved sheep, apparently, because everyone seemed to feel like he was their pastor. One summer at the Calvary Chapel Conference Center in Austria, Pastor Chuck was scheduled to be at the annual missions conference, and I was pretty stoked to get to see Pastor Chuck in person for the first time. And he came, and he was just some normal bald-headed preacher, but I could see what everyone meant. He just had the love of Jesus, and you couldn't help but esteem him for how he ministered simply the Word of God. He even got up crazy early the last morning of the conference and made all the missionaries cinnamon rolls from scratch. A true treat for all the missionary families as there wasn't exactly Cinnabon in our necks of the woods where we were serving. I remember his grandson even woke him up for a nap because our little team from Hawaii had said that we wanted to say hi and snap a photo with him. Because one of our teammates, who was a 12-year-old middle schooler, had been hearing Pastor Chuck preach since she was a little girl and had a pastor crush on the lovable grandpa figure and was giddy that she was finally able to meet him in person. And his grandson woke him up from a nap, which we didn't know at the time, to see if he'd come say hi and take a picture with us. And even though the moment of rest during a conference while ministering the whole week to 400 missionaries in need of encouragement was a big thing, especially because he was probably in his mid-70s at the time and maybe even jet-lagged after flying halfway around the world for the conference, he wasn't grumpy or anything. We got our two minutes with Pastor Chuck, aloha shirt and all. We snapped a pic, not a selfie, this was before selfies, and I still love that picture even to this day. Pastor Chuck wasn't beloved because he was the coolest guy around or because he was hip and trendy and well-polished on social media. He wasn't the most entertaining or slickest teacher, but he loved the sheep, and the sheep could sense that authentic love, and it was mutual. Paul wanted this for the believers in Thessalonica, that when it came to those who labored among them, they would esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. The third thing Paul wants them to consider when it comes to their leaders, be at peace among yourselves. Remember, remember, the church had been embroiled in tension and conflict in Thessalonica, mobs coming in and stirring up trouble, Paul and the team having to skip town. There was great conflict outside the church, so Paul wants them to minimize the conflict within and be at peace among themselves. I think there are two ways to look at this. First, being in spiritual leadership can look a lot like parenting sometimes, putting out fires between brothers and sisters in the church who are not getting along, like the whole church is sitting in the back seat of the minivan arguing and bickering with one another, and the leaders are being drugged in constantly to try and get everyone to get along. Tattletailers dragging them into every little conflict petty things sometimes that really don't matter in the grand scheme of things, and bigger things sometimes that the enemy is pouring oil on in order to fracture and divide the church. Be at peace among yourselves, Paul says. Learn to get along as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Find grace for one another. Let the love of Jesus and the wisdom of the word solve a lot of that conflict and die to ourselves to maintain peace. As Paul said in Philippians 2, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Being at peace with one another, that in itself will bless any and every spiritual leader. Another way to look at that, be at peace among yourselves, might be in don't attack those leaders God has called to labor among us. Sheep can bite, and they often do. And sort of like in politics, people might love a leader until they don't. And as soon as they disagree or do not approve of something, the adoring sheep become aggressive and bite back. Think of Jesus in Jerusalem. One day, crowds shouting, Hosanna, save now, adoring him as Messiah, laying down branches at his triumphal entry. And within the week, crucify him, crucify him. The same adoring crowds. People can be fickle and can attack those who are called to lead. And sometimes this is misplaced aggression. They actually deep down have a beef with, beef with someone else, but they transfer those thoughts or feelings or insecurities onto a pastor or other leader. Misplaced or unrealistic expectations. And the disillusion causes them to begin to fight against or talk against or butt against those called of God to lead. Be at peace among yourselves, Paul says. Don't start conflict or pursue conflict. As Paul wrote to the Romans, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men, be at peace among yourselves, and that includes leaders. It's a lot of responsibility to take on the mantle of being a leader among God's people. There's added pressure of spiritual warfare as the enemy targets those called to lead, knowing that if he can wound them or get them to stumble and fall, then the impact will ricochet throughout the church. That if the enemy can strike the shepherd, then the sheep will flee but can also be a lot taking on the heart and burden of the Lord for his people, his flock. Back in the Old Testament book of Exodus, there's a chapter about what the priests of God's people were to wear. And this was much more than a divine fashion statement. My wife likes to watch the reality show Project Runway, in which up-and-coming designers go through a series of challenges to see who can make the biggest impact in the fashion world. The Lord wasn't concerned, though, with the priests entering or winning any fashion tournaments, but everything the priests wore was to make a statement. And in Exodus 28, it describes a breastplate of judgment the priest was to wear, a square breastplate, adorned in precious stones, four rows of three, and each of those stones with the name of one of the twelve tribes that the priest represented. After describing the breastplate, we read the explanation as to why they were to wear this. It says, So Aaron, that was the high priest at the time, shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. Did you catch that? It was to be over his heart, so that each time he went in to represent them before the Lord, he had them close to his heart. That's one reason I knew I was supposed to serve in Slovenia, because I had this unexplainable burden in my heart after my first trip there. It made no sense why I, still just a teenager, with a whole life and interest and activities on the other side of the world, would have this love and this burden for a nation I knew almost nothing about, had no ancestral roots to it, no political ties, no vested interests, but God had somehow put them on my heart, and I couldn't shake it. The priests wore the people close to their hearts, because spiritual leaders should lead from the heart. It's not a job or a career or a philanthropic, philanthropic pursuit. It is a burden of the heart to care for God's people, to shepherd his sheep that the Lord himself cares for. Paul knew this burden himself. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is having to defend his apostleship to the church, since some false teachers had tainted their name and made the church question Paul's sincerity. 
And he starts listing all the things that should prove to them Paul's calling and heart and dedication, because if it had not been a call of God, he would have jumped ship long ago. He writes that he had been scourged by the Jews, beaten with rods, stoned once, three shipwrecks, spending a night and a day in the open sea, journeying often in perils in waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of his own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, and here's the clincher, besides those other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. What Paul could point to as the biggest evidence of his calling, the daily deep concern he had for the churches. They were on his heart all the time, and all that he went through, he did it for them. It can be wearying to continue pour out and sacrifice and serve, but if the Lord has called us to it and appointed us to it, he will renew our heart for it and give us all we need to be faithful in it. The problem is when we go on autopilot and we think that it's up to us, that we are somehow responsible to fulfill the call of God or meet the needs. Not so. Psalm 55, 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. We're to roll those burdens onto him and he shall sustain us and continually renew our heart for what he has put upon it. I love the stories of George Mueller, called to minister to the orphans in Bristol, England in the 1800s. His biography is such an encouragement as he was a vessel but sought to leave the burdens to the Lord. And God always came through, providing for the orphans even when Mueller and the organization had nothing to give. My favorite is an account that goes like this. The children are dressed and ready for school, but there is no food for them to eat, the house mother of the orphanage informed George Mueller. George asked her to take the 300 children into the dining room and have them sit at the tables. He thanked God for the food and waited. George knew God would provide food for the children, as he always did. Within minutes, a baker knocked on the door. Mr. Mueller, he said, last night I could not sleep. Somehow I knew that you would need bread this morning. I got up and baked three batches for you. I'll bring it in. Soon there was another knock at the door. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. The milk would spoil by the time the wheel was fixed. He asked George if he could use some free milk. George smiled as the milkman brought in 10 large cans of milk. It was just enough for the 300 thirsty children. It was no burden for Mr. Mueller. He had a heart for orphans, a heart given by the Lord, and he trusted that Jesus would sustain him in and every way. Perhaps your heart is weary in the calling God has for you. As a parent or as a spouse, as a faithful employee, as a missionary, as a youth worker or children's minister or greeter or worship leader or humanitarian aid giver or as a pastor or as a business owner who wants to glorify Jesus with integrity or as an educator who knows Jesus or as a student who wants to stand up for his glory in a Christ-rejecting world or any number of other things that God has called you to, may the Lord renew and refresh your heart. May you draw upon the Lord and his heart and his resources. And may you declare, as Paul did in 2 Corinthians 4.1, Therefore, since we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Paul knew the leaders in Thessalonica and elsewhere had so much on their plates. And leadership giftings are important, but they're just one set of giftings. And though many churches try to ride the coattails of a dedicated and faithful leader who is serving God and his people with everything they can, it's not up to them to hold things together single-handedly. Though some might treat coming to church as being a paying audience member, and they hope the leadership will have put together a good show again for them this week. But a healthy church and ministry is not meant to rest solely upon the shoulders of leadership, nor can it. 
And so now Paul turns his spotlight on the rest of them in the congregation, the laity, the congregation, and he calls on them to do some peacekeeping and tending of the flock too. Because if caring for and tending and encouraging and building up the body is the responsibility of a handful of church workers and the rest get to just show up on occasion and expect everything to be going well and everyone to be doing well, well, it doesn't work that way. Because God has placed us in the body with different gifts and the body is built up as each one does his or her part. So now he calls upon the laity, the congregation, to help tend the flock too. We see this in verses 14 and 15. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. You, brethren, we exhort you, we challenge you to action. We're called in the body to help take care of one another. The writer of Hebrews telling us, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works consider one another? What do others in the body need? Here are some things Paul was telling the Thessalonians to watch out for. First, warn those who are unruly. Unruly, it means disorderly, or an army term meaning falling out of ranks. You can picture rows and rows of soldiers marching in step together, and you got one out of formation or marching on the wrong foot and causing the whole group to be out of order. Unruly can also mean deviating from the prescribed order or rule someone kind of doing their own thing and causing disruption to all the rest. We all had that kid in school, I think, growing up, always getting in trouble. And because of that, the class missed out, couldn't go on the field trip or couldn't have the reward day. I think my class growing up must have had a lot of them because at Kihei Elementary School in Maui, where I grew up, it was always tradition that the fifth graders went away for a few days to a camp called Camp Maluhia. Every fifth grade class had done it. My brother had gone, who was two years my senior. It was kind of a rite of passage. But my class... I guess we had too many kolohes who were unruly because we didn't get to go. As a fifth grader, I was bummed for all those who ruined it for the rest of us. But now, as a teacher, I totally get it. And Paul told the body to warn those who are unruly. Sometimes peers can get to us better than leaders can. First, because peers observe things that otherwise are hidden. Second, because we might just be able to get through to them. There's a lot of freedom in Christ and a lot of grace in the body of Christ. But the sin of rebellion is not something the Lord looks lightly upon. Throughout scripture, rebellion is rebuked and condemned and punished. We even read in 1 Samuel, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Being unruly, not willing to allow others to rule or guide or lead us, God does not turn a blind eye to it. Hebrews 13, 17 tells us, obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Being in charge is not easy, so give them a break. Now granted, not all spiritual leadership is doing the right thing. But rather than being unruly, we may need to seek the Lord to know if he is moving us on. For if you don't feel you can trust the person's leadership, well, then perhaps once you've checked your own heart, it's a stirring for you to take a step of faith to obey the Lord's leadership and come away to support other leaders who God is working through. But just being unruling out of pride or carnality or another reason, he says, warn them. Second, he writes, comfort the faint-hearted. Comfort them. Come alongside them. Encourage them. Console them. Speak to them. Not everyone is going to be super Christians. Some may be faint-hearted, not doing the greatest. And it can be tempting in the body of Christ to put on a mask, to show as if we have it all together, as if our faith is strong, it's all good, praise the Lord, when inside we are faint-hearted comfort them. 
And that might just be a hug or a pat on the back, but notice that the word means speak to them too. And while I'm sure it's going to be okay, may sound great, it's a pretty empty comfort to just say, I'm sure everything's going to turn out fine. But speaking comfort by the word of God can strengthen the faint-hearted. When we want to encourage someone in the body of Christ, it is good to seek the Lord and pray for a word of his strength and comfort, and not just our own good, well-meaning intentions. The word here for comfort the faint-hearted, it has the same root as in 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul writes that those who prophesy speak edification, exhortation, and comfort. And anyone prophesying speaks forth for God. God uses them to say something. We can comfort people with golden verses that speak to us that are so common that we can cite them. But how profound when the Lord gives a bold and profound comfort, one that lifts the heart of the faint-hearted. Third, Paul says, uphold the weak. It means to hold someone firmly or event or, or stand opposite them to keep them from falling over. What a picture of not being able to stand up on your own and needing others around you to prop you up. That's something God wants us doing in the body of Christ, being strong for the weak. And I think that that is a good attitude to have. Some believers are always struggling, always weak, and so they can't offer any strength to others when they might need it. And that is a blessing of being strong in the Lord, to be able to support the weak. But there are times when we ourselves feel so weak we don't feel like we have anything to give. Not true. Paul often felt weak and like he had nothing to give. But after years of that, he had concluded in 2 Corinthians, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul said effectively, Even if I am weak, bring on the weak people. I trust the Lord will give me something to hold up someone else who might need it. And it might be good for me to get my eyes off my own weakness from time to time. Strength coming to us when we might need it, because we're willing to stand in the gap for those who might need it as well. Fourth and finally, be patient with all. The church is definitely a place that tests our patience. Imperfect people needing lots of grace. And who are we to be patient with? With all. The word in Greek for all means all. Each, every, any, all, the whole, everyone, all things, everything. Some of all different types. So sorry. If your patience is wearing thin with some in your church or Christian circles, there's a biblical mandate. You have to be patient with them too. But that is something that God will give to us if a bit more patience is what we need, because he will always give us whatever it is we need to do what he's calling us to do. Paul closes this section by telling the congregation, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Sorry, you can't take revenge. You can't get back at them. And this is ironic because pretty much any great Hollywood movie has that as a key plot element. Getting revenge, turning the tables. I'll be back. Get the bad guys at all costs. It's all justified because they fired first. Paul's final word in this section is that there should be a ceasefire that they would put down their carnal weapons and any battles or issues that needed to be fought or hammered out should be done so in the spirit. Much of the world lives by the golden rule, doing to others what you want them to do to you. But Paul says for the church, always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. The word can mean to run swiftly in order to catch a person or a thing, to run after, pursuing, run swiftly to what God is, says is good both for you and yourselves and for all. That's a rest that we can all be training for. That's a finish line we can strive for. Living and serving and ministering and working with people can be messy. 
It would be nice sometimes to sneak off to some deserted island, wouldn't it? But the Lord said early on in creation, it is not good that man should be alone. Not good. And now we are to pursue what is good both for us and for others. And what good, what is good for us? Well, it's more of Jesus. A lot of the struggles we have with others come from us, not being rightly related to Jesus in the moment. So pursue more of Jesus. That is good both for you and for all. For your family, for your friends, for your church, for your world. You pursuing more of Jesus is a good thing all around. So Lord, we ask that you will fill us afresh with more of you. That we would lay aside our carnal thoughts and ways and attitudes and activities. That we would take hold of the callings that you have for us. And let you impart your heart to us. Thank you, Jesus, for the grace that you gave us in the cross of Christ. And give us grace to extend to others as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.